Did you know that when Jesus established his church, he also simultaneously established Peter and his successors as the head of his church? And did you know that it's all right here for us to see in today's readings? Not only from Matthew 16, the New Testament, but also in Isaiah 22 in the Old Testament. So what I want to do is take you point by point because Jesus has a plan here and in each line it becomes more and more clear. And the Holy Spirit guides uh, St. Matthew to record all of this in writing so we have it to this day. So let's jump in. Divine election. The Father and the Son choose P- Peter. Jesus starts with this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is. The Son of Man is a title for him, like the Son of God and Messiah and Christ and so on. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he asks this for a reason, and you're going to see it in a second. Well, the disciples say, well, um, some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or the prophets, meaning what they just revealed is confusion. Even in Jesus' age, time, There is confusion about who Jesus is. And what is true of Jesus' age, people getting him wrong, is true of our age and every age in between and it will be until he comes again. Such is the nature of fallen humanity. We do not get God right. So he asked the next question. Who do you say that I am? Knowing who's going to answer, and what he's going to say. Peter pipes up, and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And right there, he's given who Jesus is, his identity, and what he will do, his mission. You're the Son of God, his identity, and his mission is he's the Christ, Christos. The Messiah in Hebrew, it means the anointed one, the Savior. This is his mission. And what follows next is important then too. Jesus clarifies to Peter and for all of his apostles to hear this. No person of flesh and blood, no mere mortal has revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so what he's clarifying is divine election. God chooses Peter, chooses one person to know the identity and the mission of Jesus so that there will always be at least one person and therefore one church that he's going to build upon this person who gets Jesus right. And not only who one person during Jesus' time in one church, but for all ages, meaning Peter's successors, as we'll see in a moment. Then what comes next is a name change. From Simon, son of Jonah, to Peter. Now remember, when we're interpreting scriptures, and you've learned this from me in my time with you, the Jewish context is the key to understanding. Otherwise, we're just reading it in English, 
And we're reading it through the lens of 21st century rather than the time in which it was written. And that is what the biblical scholars call the hermeneutical key that opens up the whole meaning. So what's in the name change? Well, let's go to the Old Testament. There are multiple times when God appears in what's called a theophany, a a presence of God, a showing of God. And he encounters a human being and he changes their name. So I'll give you one example. Abram to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Abram means exalted father, but Abraham means father of the multitude or of the nations. And this is kind of ironic, isn't it? Because when God appears to Abraham, he's in his old age and so is his wife Sarah, and she's been barren, hasn't been able to give children, and now he's going to change the name. And not only does he not have any children right now, but he's telling them he's going to be the father of multitudes. This is the power of promise. God fulfills his promise when he changes identity and gives mission. And so what happens? Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac, with his wife, gives birth to um, Jacob. And then God appears to Jacob and changes his name to Israel. And thus, Abraham is the father not just of one nation, the 12 tribes of Israel. He's the father of many nations. Because we are Judeo-Christians. And even to this day, we see in the Old Testament our father, Abraham. And Christianity and Judaism is throughout the world. God fulfills his promises. When God changes your name, he gives you a new identity and a new mission. So, let's go back to Peter. He says... You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Well, Peter moves from, remember he's speaking in Aramaic, so it's kathos, right? But then when you go from that, the the Greek translation of that is petros. So what he's saying really is this. He says, you are Peter, you are a rock, and upon this rock, upon you, I will build my church. This is going to be Peter's identity. He's going to be the foundation stone for Christ to build his church. So this is his mission. But what's his identity? Well, that's what comes next. Not even the gates of hell, Jesus declares, the gates of hell, the netherworld, Hades, not even the gates of hell shall prevail against this foundation stone and the church that I'm going to build upon you. Well, where does this come from? Again, Jewish context. And the Jews would have picked up on this. His apostles would have immediately made the connection. In Jerusalem is the temple, and in the inner room of the inner rooms in the temple is called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant used to be stored. And in the center of the Ark of the Covenant is the covenant itself. And that is the presence of God dwelling among his people here on earth, right there in the sanctuary. Holy of Holies means sanctuary. And in that sanctuary is God's presence. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I mean, it's all interesting. The Ark 
in the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary is positioned on top of a huge foundation stone that the Lord asked his people to um, lay when they were laying the, um, the, the, um, the temple. And that foundation stone in Hebrew, its name is Ivan Shetia. Ivan Shetia. And the foundation stone is placed over top a very deep hole that the Jews believed was the entrance, or if you will, the gateway into the netherworld, into hell. And so the temple for centuries, the foundation of the central part of it was sitting over top the entrance from hell and keeping at bay hell from overtaking the earth. And so Peter, here's his mission. And Jesus is saying this to him. So I'm going to build a new temple, the church, and I'm going to build it upon you, the new Ivanshetia, the new foundation stone, the rock. And this church is going to hold at bay the gates of hell and not allow hell to overtake the world. This is his mission and the mission of the church. And they are intimately connected. Right at the beginning as he's establishing both of them. But to do this, Peter and his successors need power, authority. And not earthly power from a king, but divine royal power from the king of kings who is son of God identity and son of man. A son, of God, a son of God identity, son of man mission, savior. So that's what comes next. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says to Peter. Well, where does this come from? Again, the Jewish context. And it's interesting because it's right here in our first reading, Isaiah 22. To understand the meaning of the key that he gives is to understand what the key means. Or the key to understanding the meaning is in the keys. So let's go to that. The background is that the king of Judah was the king of the Jews. And he was the absolute power among the Jews. But there was a second in command. And the second command was the Albayit in Hebrew. Albayit in Hebrew means over the house. Well, who was over the household among the Jews in every house in the time of the Jews and of Jesus' time? It was the father. So the Albayit was a father figure that the king places over his house, the kingdom, when, when, ever he went away from the kingdom. So what's going on here then? Jesus is giving keys to Peter. Peter is being designated as the new Albayit, the new chief steward, the new prime minister, the new father over the house of the kingdom of heaven on earth, the church. He's going to be, therefore, the second in command of this kingdom of heaven on earth. The head over all of the other leaders, the other ministers 
he's going to be the prime minister under Jesus. He's father over the house of God, the church. And it's interesting, too, when you look at history and you look at the early church, what, what do you see? You see the earliest successors to St. Peter. You see them being named Papa in Italian, Pater in Latin, which is what they spoke back then. Papa, in modern day, is what? Father. Papa, Pope. And to this day, we follow that for our popes. But this is where it comes from. Peter as the Albaif, this is his mission then, the Albaif. He's father over the house of God while the king is away and until he comes again. So therefore, the keys symbolize the authority given to him and his successors to the Father to lead and govern the house of God and protect it and the world against the gates of hell being opened and unleashed upon the world. Which leads to what Jesus says next. This is all in succession. And the order is important. Binding and loosening. He says to Peter, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Where does this come from? Okay, all over the scriptures in the Old Testament, well, let's just stick with Isaiah 22. The king says to his Albaith in Isaiah 22, about him, he says about him, when he opens, no one shall shut. When he shuts, no one shall open. What is he saying? Exactly what Jesus said here in just in different verbiage. The king, when he returns, will honor what his prime minister enacts while he was away. And again, we know this not just from scripture, but from history itself, from the culture of the Jews. The kings always had all baifs. They were always successors to them. I'll get to that in a moment. And, and whenever... Whenever they went away, the Albaith wasn't just a steward who maintained the status quo and the laws of the king. He could actually enact laws, make declarations, clarifications, define things for the people. And when the king came back, he would honor those things. And that's on an earthly level. That itself is incredible. But take it to the next level. What Jesus is saying to Peter and to the rest of his apostles as he's establishing church is this. He says, if you teach something here, it will be so in heaven. If you declare something now, it will be honored in heaven. If you define something as true in this day, in this age, like the identity of Jesus Christ as fully God and fully human, which the early popes had to do successfully, one after the other in the early church, in order to clarify who Jesus was as he revealed himself from the scriptures, but was being challenged by a confused world. If you do this, then so it is in heaven. Now, how can Jesus, in confidence, place this guarantee upon and perfect men. How can he do this? Because of his promise. 
And when he gives a promise, he fulfills the promise. And because of divine election. And precisely because this man has been divinely elected by God and given the power and authority by God to lead his church. So that in matters related to Christ and his church, identity and mission, in matters, that is, of faith and morals, Peter and his successors are given the infallible power and authority from their divine king, Jesus Christ. Which begs this question. What happens if that Albaid, if that Papa, if that Pope is a sinner? What happens if he's imperfect? What happens if he's even in his actions immoral? Which has happened with some of our popes, a few of them throughout the centuries. Well, in matters of faith or morals, nothing happens. Nothing changes. And the popes continue to define and to clarify that which is truth in matters of faith and morals. Faith, meaning who the identity of Jesus Christ is in all things related to him. Uh, and then in morals, the mission of Jesus Christ. And what was the mission of Jesus Christ? Remember? Christos, to save his people. To save his people from what? From sins. So even in the realm of morality, God gives this infallible power. What does the word even morals come from? In Latin, it means to hit the mark. So when one is immoral, one is missing the mark. And what is the mark? To get to heaven. And how do we miss the mark? By our actions when they are sinful. When they deviate from who Jesus Christ is and who we are in our identity and mission in this world. And so, you, and we have seen this among some of our popes, you can have a pope who, like Peter, was a sinner, who, like Peter, was not perfect, and can even be immoral in their personal lives and in their personal opinions and in their actions. But what God preserves from generation to generation of pope is that infallible power restricted only to matters of faith and morals. And it's fascinating to read the history of the popes. A few years ago, I read a history of popes. It was a six-volume history called the History of Christendom. And it takes you from the Old Testament to the New Testament all the way up to, Saint, uh, um, all the way up to Pope Benedict because the author died during the pontificate of Pope Benedict. His name is Dr. Warren Carroll. And you see him in the scholarly research going to primary sources and showing how pope after pope, even some of the immoral ones during their times, even though they made mistakes and they were sinful in their personal lives, they never allowed, God never allowed them to proclaim as doctrine anything that is untruth. It's incredible history of the popes. Remember I mentioned successors. So where does this come from? It seems as if he's only talking to Peter. Right? Well, again, the Jewish context. Following the model that God established for his people, the Jews, because that is the prototype 
for the kingdom of heaven on earth, the church. And then you and I are on this journey to the fullness of that in the kingdom of heaven in heaven. So following the model that God established for his people, the Jews, regarding earthly kingdom, the Albaites had successors. Again, we have to look no further than Isaiah 22, which is all, it's a passage all about the succession of one Albaite to the next Albaite by the king Hezekiah. There's a succession from one prime minister to the next prime minister, meaning that this is an office of the Albaite, of the Papa, over the house. The role of the prime minister of the Pope is an office. As one Albaite dies, the king, through his authority, elects a new power over the house of his kingdom. Or he has the power to remove that Albaite and to replace him with somebody else, which he does in Isaiah 22. As one pope dies or abdicates, which we've seen in our time, abdicate the office of St. Peter, which was, which was Benedict the Sixteenth. As one pope dies or abdicates the office of St. Peter, God divinely elects a new papa, a new pope over the church, the king of heaven here on earth. And it's fascinating, too, that the first words out of the mouth of the cardinal who presides over this when he comes out into um, the balcony and he says to the world, we have a new pope, what does he say? We have a new papa. Now, we could stop right there. And that would be enough for us to understand and truly appreciate what our Catholic faith is and what God is doing. But we also have to understand the reason, the why. What does all this mean for us as Christians, as members of the universal apostolic Catholic Church that Christ founded upon Peter, the first pope? Well, let me first clarify this. Where did we get the name Catholic? Because that's not in the scriptures. In the end of the first century, the followers of Jesus started to be named um, Christians, and it was in the um, Antioch. And, uh, and that's where we have the first historical notations of them being called Christians. And it was not soon after that, at the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, that the name Catholic begins to pop up all over the place around the Roman world. We don't know where at first because it just happens in several places at the same time. And the reason why is that others who are not Christian who are, who are going from town to town, like Alexandria in northern Africa, or Jerusalem or Antioch, or um, um, Byzantium in modern-day Turkey, or Rome, or up in Spain and Gaul. They were all, when they were traveling around, seeing something that was universal. That whenever they encountered Christians, they believed universally the same thing, and they practiced universally the same thing. Identity and mission. Well, Catholic in Greek, katholikos, simply means universal. So it was an adjective that was applied to the Christian church, Christ church, in the end of the first century, uh, beginning of the second century, and it later became a noun. It became a noun. So what does all this mean for us as Catholics and for the world? 
that Christ founded his church historically upon Peter, the first pope, and his successors. Well, I think relevant to our times, you can hone in on this. There are many reasons, but just follow this. In this crazy, mixed-up, confused world that is getting Jesus wrong all over the place, there is one who will not get Jesus wrong. Many today don't know him, and those who know him, about him, don't know him, and therefore don't understand his identity and mission. And you need only look to the way even Christians are living their life today to see that, let alone the rest of the world. So related to this confusion, we see our society fracturing. And by the way, it's not particular to 21st century world. This has happened over and over again, and Jesus knew this, and this was his plan, his response. So follow this. Get God wrong. Get the Son of God wrong, who was not only fully God but fully human. Then you'll get humanity wrong. And get humanity wrong, you'll get human society wrong. The result is that we relativize truth about Jesus' identity and his mission and how we relate to that. Fear overtakes faith. In all the institutions of our human society, which is used, used to be stable and strong for us, like marriage and family, and the formation and education of children, law and order, government, and the social norms of how we treat one another as humans made in the image and likeness of God. They are all then shaken at their foundations. And isn't that what's happening right now? But again, it's not particular to the 21st century. And it won't be until the end of time. But what does this mean for us as Catholics? who are Christians of the historic church that Christ founded upon Peter and the popes. It means this, that there is one who gets who Jesus is, gets him right, gets right the identity and mission of Jesus Christ. This man, this father over the house of God, is divinely elected. Getting Jesus right, who is fully God and fully human, this prime minister will get humanity right too. Get God and humanity right, get marriage right, family life right, the education and formation of children right, and all the other important social institutions necessary for human flourishing, necessary for us to know our identity and our mission as human beings. In this time when we are forgetting who we are, who we were created to be as human beings, when we're reinventing even our humanity, when we're forgetting our purpose in this world and experiencing the resulting chaos, there is a foundation upon which each of us can build our lives or rebuild our lives and our marriages and our, fam and our families and so on. There's a foundation that we can build upon, a foundation of the church that Jesus Christ established. And the all by Eves he elects to ensure that the gates of hell don't overtake our lives.